Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome to this special edition of Willy Willy Harry Stee, where I'm going to take a step to one side to get a general overview of the medieval section of our royal timeline. I'm going to widen my focus from not just looking at the monarchs and try to find out what life would have been like for the ordinary people of Britain at that time. Now, I'm aiming to do probably three of these specials as I think you can break down the last thousand years of royal rule into three distinct parts. The Normans and medieval era, then the period of the Tudors and Stuarts, and finally the modern era from the Hanoverians through to the Windsors. And my guest is the brilliant Ian Mortimer, someone who is passionate about the Middle Ages and passionate about correcting our misconceptions of the era, which I guess can probably be best summed up by Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This idea, <laughs> this idea of a land of ignorant superstitions. That's a lovely mud over here. Yes, exactly. It was all drowning witches and living in filth. So Ian, as I said in my introduction, so far, my podcast has been about the monarchs and ordinary people have appeared only now and then in glimpses as victims of the Black Death or as common foot soldiers in the endless wars or as participants in the Peasants' Revolt. But I really want to get an idea of what day-to-day -day life would have been like. I thought you'd be the perfect guest to guide me through all this, Ian, as you wrote the best-selling Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England, which does exactly what it says on the cover. It picks you up and drops you right into the middle of the 14th century and immerses you in the sights, sounds and smells of this era. And you've also recently written Medieval Horizons, Why the Middle Ages Matter. And so, Ian, can I start by asking you 
why do the Middle Ages matter? Well, thank you very much for asking me, first of all. Um, why the Middle Ages matter? This book comes out of an earlier book of mine called Centuries of Change. And that book reacted to the presumption that the 20th century saw more change than any previous century. Mm. And that presumption is based on technology. And the more I started looking around, the more I was convinced that everybody around me was convinced that technology is the main agent of change in the way we live. So I wrote Centuries of Change to examine this. And the fact is that technology has changed our lives hugely, but not necessarily for reasons we suppose. Obviously, the invention of artificial fertilizers means more people can exist than ever before. And that in itself is a huge change due to technology. But having written that book and examined 10 centuries of change from the 11th through to the modern world, I then thought, but in some ways, this is missing the point, or it's it's looking at the point from one angle, and there is another story to be told. And the story to be told is really this, that when we look at Shakespeare, we look at him speaking for us. He represents the eternal man and woman in many ways, the things that they say so often we can associate with, we understand them, we feel he is speaking for us. There's no way that Shakespeare was speaking for the normal person in the 11th century. And if you follow that logic through, well, technology doesn't make a lot of difference to what we actually are inside, our personalities, our characters. That is a product of the period from the 11th century through to, to Shakespeare. In other words, it's a result of changes in the Middle Ages. And yet, and yet, when you look at sort of a lot of best-selling books about long periods of time, you get the impression that historians themselves subscribe to the idea that technology changes everything mm. and the Middle Ages don't see very much change. And I just thought, well, I've got to do something about this. So I wrote Medieval Horizons to demonstrate what we owe to the cultural changes of the Middle Ages, because the England of or the Europe of uh, the 15th century was a very, very different place from the uh, the England or the Europe of the 11th century. And the, the experience of ordinary people was hugely different between those two ages, as was the experience of those who ruled them. And broadly speaking, are we talking about changes for the better? Uh, yes and no. Broadly speaking, yes. But you have got a lot of changes which weren't for the better, um, and most of those are to do with uh, violence. I mean, the, the the ability to mow large numbers of people down with firearms, I don't think, was a move for the better. You may think, well, it's all war, isn't it? It's no better or worse than people um, you know, shooting each other with uh, bows and arrows or hacking each other to pieces with swords and lances. But it set us on a path whereby society fundamentally changed. In the book, I take about 20 different horizons and uh, or, or metaphorical horizons and show how they were predominantly for the better. The, the horizon of knowledge, you know, you didn't tra travel far from home in the 11th century because there wasn't very much need to for the majority of people. But by the 16th century, people had gone around the world. So our understanding of the mm. world was so much more. Our, our trading links were so much further, so much more robust. We had shifted from a subsistence economy where people had to experience famine roughly every four to five years to one where famine was still present, but was on a 10 to 20 year basis. And by the end of the 16th century, by Shakespeare's time, we got to the situation where we could control the effects of famine in this country through the old poor law. So we have these huge changes whereby you go from you're starving to death and no one's going to save you to a national system whereby the rich are taxed in order to pay for the upkeep of the poor in times of death. 
That, to my mind, is a pretty huge revolution. And then you can look at things like the horizon of memory through writing. There's probably, in the early years of the 11th century, there are probably fewer than a 1,000 literate people for the whole of the British Isles, producing probably fewer than 2 million words per year for all purposes. And yet, by the end of Shakespeare's time, you've got roughly 100 billion words being produced per year wow. because of the number of publications uh, and the high level of literacy in the country. So on all these levels, yes, there's a lot of change for the for the better, but it's not all a march of progress. And I'd say the, the power of um, authority and the power of firearms are two of those areas where I think people would have say, seen we, we've taken a few steps backwards. Yes, I had uh, Kath Hanley, who's an expert on medieval warfare on as a guest in an earlier episode. And she talked about this idea that if you had castles, you tended not to have pitched battles. You avoided fighting because that was just too costly. A lot of people would get killed and you still wouldn't have captured the castles because they were too strong. And then you didn't want to pull them down. You wanted to take them over and use them yourself. So there was a lot of skirmishing, but few battles. And when you did fight, you wanted to capture the nobility so that you could ransom them and not wipe them out. And you wouldn't win many friends by slaughtering great swathes of common foot soldiers. But once you invent cannons, the castles start to become redundant because they can be so much more easily knocked down. So having big, powerful armies became much more important. You look at the size of the armies by the 60s. By the time the Spanish were fighting in Holland, they've got a standing army of 200,000 men, um, all of whom have to be paid for and taken across, and uh, etc. Massive armies. Whereas the Battle of Hastings was a major battle, probably had fewer than 8,000 people on each side. But still people did get hurt. Oh, they got hurt. And of course, they, they, they suffered in lots of other ways, too. Uh, I mean, the, the, the medicine you know, clearly got better over the course of the, the whole period, too. So uh, although your life expectancy in the 16th century wasn't that much longer than it was in the days of famine, um, you, you could at least hope for some pain alleviation and better surgical skill. I like the fact that if you're wealthy, you could actually have opiates. I think I would have been uh, uh, much happier being wealthy in the 16th century. You've got proper painkillers rather than the 11th. So what what are those opiates made from? Well, opium that's brought across from the Far East. Oh, right. So when, when would that have started coming over? I'm not absolutely certain, but certainly by the 14th century uh, and possibly in the 13th. I'm not clear enough on the evidence for the 13th. Because we sort of had this idea that there was nothing and people just... Well, if you couldn't afford them, of course, yes, it's it's a a uh... hefty drink and get the sore out. (laughs) Now, I'm sorry to put this on you, Ian, but I've tried to get various other historians to to help me on this and they've all said, no, (laughs) I'm not going there. But in your Time Traveller's Guide to Medieval England, you very clearly and succinctly managed to explain for to me, how feudalism works. <laughs> ah, right. Well, this is going to be a, a very broad brush explanation. Yes. But picture a country, picture Europe with no great castles where if one tribe, and we are talking about kings of people in those days, the Kingdom of England didn't exist until Richard I's time. We're talking about the kings of the English or the kings of the Franks, where your king is responsible, obviously, for his people, and yet another tribe can come along and whack them. 
to put it mildly, um, or in the case of the Vikings, come and attack wherever they want at very short notice with overwhelming force. So you have a real problem if you're a king of one of these people or one of these peoples having to defend them against attack. And that's your first responsibility as a, as a political leader. Feudalism is a response to this. And it works more or less like this. If you can have a stronghold, a castle for want of a better word, if you have a kind of castle and a force associated with that castle, then the people can a take refuge in that castle. And if they can outlast the attacking force, then they have won because the attacking force has to take the castle to take that part of the country. If you then have hundreds of these castles, even if the attacking force besieges every single one of them one by one, it's going to run out of food. It's not going to have the, the, the force or the impetus to conquer a, a whole country. So these castles, in the widest definition, act as strongholds or like nails of authority in the kingdom so that they stop a, a tribe overrunning the whole country, as had happened so many times in Europe beforehand. So the invention of the castle is in many ways a demonstration of political authority, but an effective one. And it secures, it nails that bit of the country to that political ruler. The thing is, the feudal system is whereby that the lord of that castle, the lord of the area, is uh, given the land, given a privileged position uh, in order for defending that part of the country and uh, 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 organising its stable defence in times of war. So political authority nailed via a castle to the land. Feudal is basically the control of the land. Now, if all those lords are loyal to the king, he's got a stable realm. That's how the feudal system basically worked. Uh, and, of course, after society became much more stable in the 11th and 12th centuries, then the need for all these castles to be maintained in such a, uh, a regional way did dissipate. The, the likelihood of tribes overrunning your country reduced, and therefore the need for a castle for uh, national defence really uh, declined, so that by the 13th century onwards, the feudal system is is effectively dead. All right. So, but so so, just talk us through that that sort of hierarchical system coming down from the lord of the manor down to whoever's right at the bottom. Well, if we take England as the easiest example, and for us to understand, the king owns all the land. William the Conqueror, in 1066, owns England outright. He keeps control of about a fifth of it. I think roughly 20 percent. About a quarter is in the hands of the church, and the rest is held from him by a form of feudal tenure by all the great lords and their lesser lords. So there's a whole tier. So William on top, the Earl of uh, Sussex beneath him, owing a, a homage to him, and then the uh, lesser lords owing homage to the Earl of Sussex, and, and then the lords of little manors uh, all having their affinities beneath that, and right at the bottom, you've got your ordinary peasants, some of whom, certainly in the east of England, would have been free, fewer in the west. Um, at the very bottom of society, you have about 20% of the population in the west country slaves and about 10% across the rest of the country. So they're right at the very bottom. And those peasants who are not free and not slaves, roughly 80% of the population, owe the lord of the manor uh, service. So they have a bit of land allocated to them in return 
for them supporting the Lord and farming for him one or two or three days a week. So they they work for the Lord of the manor in return for having their bit of land, which then they can feed their families from. And what's the difference between a serf and a villain? I mean, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Is it villain or villain? What do we People pronounce them? them in different ways. And I don't really think that we can... Villani is the Latin word you always come across. Right. Um, serf is often used synonymously with villains. Right. Um, but serf also is uh, a way that people got round the the fact that servi slaves is the Latin word employed in a lot of early documents, and I, right. I can't help but feel that it's got a non-meaning in that it's uh, used for how do we describe these people without um, accentuating their servile status or making clear that their servile status was due to their occupation of some land as opposed to being bought and sold in a market. Well, in the 11th century, in William the Conqueror's time, men and women still were bought and sold in markets. They were slaves. So when you see Sir V in the, 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 the documents, the documents are referring to slaves by the old definition, you know, proper slave, chattel slaves who can be bought and sold. The term serf, I think, is a hodgepodge. It, it covers a transition into your right. your villains who can be only sort bought and sold with the land on which they work. Although theoretically, William abolishes slavery in England. The, yeah, it's slavery. In theory, by a yeah. So eleven oh two is the the actual time we have a first absolute record whereby the Council of London uh, declared it was immoral against the church rule to uh, buy and sell people. And those people. They have no freedom of movement if you're at the bottom, if you're a You're literally a slave. You are a, a, a chattel slave. And your lord, uh, according to various Anglo-Saxon rules, and of course Anglo-Saxons did love their slaves, you can be killed at the lord's pleasure if he so desires it. In the case of women, I think they're meant to be drowned or thrown off a cliff. And in the case of men, your other slaves are meant to stone them to death. Nice. Uh, and there's some early Anglo-Saxon rules. I think the Kentish... Saxon rules stipulate that this can be for something like eating between when you're not actually given food. The crime of eating between meals. So conditions as a slave were horrific. And I don't think we should have any illusions that what we think of as modern slavery, terrible though it is, can be compared with chattel slavery from Anglo-Saxon England when you didn't even uh, have the right to keep possession of your child. So at what point during the medieval period, whatever we call it, did that change significantly? 11, 1102 is the date of the Council of London, whereby the church came out and condemned it. And as far as we can tell, or as for, certainly as far as everybody I've read on the subject can tell, that is the end of chattel slavery. And it probably had come to an end before that, because William the Conqueror, as you mentioned, abhorred the idea of men and women being bought and sold in a market like cattle. The slavery didn't come to an end overnight. That was just the end of trading the slaves. Uh, and they're probably, according to some historians, there were probably some uh, slaves still in England in early 13th century. Um, it is possible there were slaves at the time of Magna Carta, uh, but it had practically ceased to exist as a function by then. Uh, I have to add that it's also not just because of the magnanimity of the slave owners it was largely due to economic circumstances whereby you you want your uh, dependent people to be able to feed themselves. You don't want to be liable for, for their liabilities. So giving them some land and actually turning them into villains 
peasants who are attached to the land meant you kept all their labor, you kept all control of them, but you basically made them responsible for feeding themselves and housing themselves. And were the and were the villains also tied to the land? Did they have any? They're, they're tied very much to the land. You weren't allowed to leave the lord land without your lord's permission. So you couldn't go to market. You couldn't get an education. Uh, in fact, in some ways, you can look at the rise of markets in the eleventh, oh, the twelfth century and thirteenth as a way of keeping these people on your land and not letting them go, because. As the land got used up, as the population grew so fast, then uh, you either had to let these people go because you couldn't afford to feed them, or you had to give them some other reason to be on your land. And founding markets was one of those ways of doing it. You kept the man's service and you kept his labor um, by giving him a function, which is, you know, whether he making clothes or making shoes or something in a market uh, and selling through the market. He didn't need to have any more land in the fields then. And, di and did the Black Death change all that? Well, if you think in terms of the population of this country rising from doomsday figure about 1.71 million. So late 11th century, 1.7 million, roughly. It increased and increased and increased because of the warming in the Middle Ages until about 1290. Yes, this warming was quite dramatic, wasn't it? I believe people were able to grow grapevines in England for the first time. And then that medieval warm period started to come to an end. And it very quickly came to a very sticky end. So you had cattle moraines, cattle diseases. You had 13, 15, a terrible, terrible summer where basically everything was wiped out. Um, food shortages. Uh, probably about 600,000 people in this country starved over the course of the early 14th century. Um, it, it, the population started to recover again in the 1340s and was probably around the 5 million mark, which is its sort of natural ceiling uh, without artificial fertilizers, uh, at the outbreak of the Black Death. And then the Black Death comes along and, you know, uh, kills 45 to 50% of the entire country. So over the course of the waves of Black Death, because it wasn't just one attack, mm. um, you, you see the population reduced to about 1.9 million by the mid-15th century, which is not that much more than it was at Doomsday. So you, you've gone through this whole cycle of everything getting better and better and better, bang, comes the Black Death, and the Black Death comes back repeatedly and reduces the population back to where it was. It's a very different population in the mid-15th century from the, 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 the 11th. There are no slaves for a start. Uh, you cannot uh, carry on the system of villainage because you need to allow people to move around to take advantage of higher wages. People had turned to a m much more market, money-based economy. So, uh, yeah, people's freedom was that much greater. And people's per capita income was much, much greater as well. Uh, and, of course, that's what we had such difficulty adjusting to in the 16th century as the population grew again and the capital assets were, had to be stretched between more and more people with the result that you end up with slavery being reintroduced at one point. Really? I, I had no idea about that. In the mid-16th century, if you were a vagabond and you didn't return to your, your parish of birth, you could be enslaved. People were in Puritan England up in arms against this, so they they, they it didn't last long. But as we know, that our, our history with slavery begins in a different dimension at that period. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let's just take it down now onto a more personal level. Not between me and you. Okay. <laughs> I'm not offering you out. What do you say? <laughs> I'll see you in the car park. We'll sort this out. Um, just like to take an example. In in the Time Travelers book, I, I found particularly interesting the section on clothing and fashion. I think it's a good example of showing change. Yeah. Because, you know, people think of the Middle Ages as this just sort of big lump where everything yeah. was the same for hundreds of years with yeah. knights on horses and kings in castles and peasants working in the fields and monks in the monasteries and fair maidens in conical hats. But <laughs> what I found fascinating was this idea of fashion and changing fashion. Remarkably rapidly in the 14th century. I mean, if you think most people's image of an aristocrat in the year 1300 will probably be somebody who's wearing a gown, which effectively looks like a refurbished curtains hanging from his shoulders. And doesn't matter how... Um, find the cloth, it still just hangs from you. And that is pretty much an accurate image of how people dressed. Male and female basically wore clothes, were suspended from their, their shoulders and went on over their heads. And if you wanted to be fashionable as an aristocratic woman, you had to have separate sleeves sewn into your garment after you put the sleeves on. Um, so there's a lot of... Uh, uh, the, the showing offness that you did get, uh, especially in some women's clothing, was extremely difficult to achieve and costly to achieve. And most people basically, you know, wore what we would call refurbished curtains. Uh, <laughs> in the 1320s, and it's not clear if it arises in Paris first or in London, uh, the button starts to make an appearance. And if you think about it, everything you wear, there's a single garment before a button has to go on over your head. And as soon as you have a button, you can actually put your arms in and then do it up. Mm. And that that's little invention is uh, hugely uh, catalytic towards advancing fashion because you no longer have to suspend everything over your head. You no longer have to um, have sleeves sewn on if you're an aristocratic woman. You can have clothes cut for you, which fit your body uh, perfectly if you have pay for the tailoring. So therefore you have 
a, a revolution in what clothing demonstrates. The, the first uh, garment like this is a coat hardy, which appears uh, in, certainly in the English counts in the late 1320s, um, early years of Edward III's reign. But then it's adapted into poltocks and all sorts of different technical pieces of clothing, which to put it bluntly, means men wore much, well, tights with much shorter tunics that might not even cover their bottoms by the 1370s. So people are outraged by this new sexualized clothing. And it's mostly the men's clothing, which is so heavily sexualized, showing their legs, cod pieces. You imagine uh, the very long uh, pointed uh, shoes that came in at the end of the 14th century called Krakow's. How long did that craze last? It started early, and I thought it did. I thought it came in with uh, Anna Bohemia and her marriage to Richard II, but it seems to predate that. And, uh, and so if you're thinking in terms of 20, 25 years of Krakow's, I think you'd be about right. Yeah. Uh, but so, it's an enduring yeah, image. <laughs> they, they end up with costumes that accentuate, in some cases, how powerful they are by demonstrating how impractical their, clo their clothing <laughs> being so impractical demonstrates how powerful they are. They don't have to do anything for themselves. So sleeves so long you could, or cuffs so long you could actually trip over them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> shoes you can't actually walk upstairs in. Um, yeah, the, 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 there is this extraordinary display of who you are and what you are and your status and sexualization through clothing. And it changes very, very rapidly. Every single five years you realize they're wearing different clothes from last time you looked at a set of these accounts. And, and of course, you have the parts of society which refuse to change, the clergy, for example, who stick to their long gowns and uh, are very proud to, to not to have anything to do with this sexualized clothing or this, these fripperies. Unless they secretly wore a pair of long pointed crack offs under their habits, perhaps with the toe ends tied back. But the important thing to realize is that society mimics the richest and uh, most admired people in society. And so this filters down. So you've got people in jerkins and uh, 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 and what we would call jackets by the end of the 14th century who are working in the fields. Um, this not something that remains confined to the upper classes. And in, what, in some ways, the reason that fashion changes so much is because once you've worn a garment, you pass it on to someone who's less fortunate than you, perhaps, mm. as a rich person. So your, 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 your page boy might end up in wearing what you were wearing five, ten years ago. So you need to be wearing something different mm. to mark out your status from your page boy. So <clears throat> in this way, fashion becomes a sort of self-perpetuating force, uh, whereas it hadn't really been that um, in, in earlier centuries, or not to the same degree. And there are leaders of fashion in earlier centuries. Um, Eleanor of Aquitaine is a key example uh, when she married the French king in the, the mid-12th century. But really, it's, it's the button that changes things more than ever before. <laughs> the button in history. <laughs> Volume I'm one. sure someone has, has, has written <laughs> it. Um, but then do, do they not start bringing in sort of laws about what kind of fabric sumptuary laws yes different people can uh, wear and what color different people can wear yeah I mean, the most famous sumptuary laws are those which are passed by Edward III um to to change or try to limit the amount of change that's going on after the black death when the survivors had a lot more uh spending power and could demand wages that meant it was worth them breaking their bonds of uh, loyalty to their existing lords and going off to work for other lords for higher wages. Edward III just saw society going through these huge changes and thought, whoa, stop a moment, and tried to pass laws, or did pass laws, to stop people having too extravagant a dinner 
uh, above their station in life or wearing clothing of too high quality. And because society was moving rapidly towards a capitalist system as a result of the Black Death, then people were amassing massive fortunes without the political responsibilities to the king, which previously had been the norm. Um, banking had taken off and made some you know, people very, very wealthy. The wool trade to the Europe had made some people extremely, extremely wealthy. And they, they didn't owe the same sort of bonds of loyalty to the king. They weren't part of a feudal system. They just were very, very wealthy. And so the sumptuary laws were trying to keep these people in their place. Uh, they didn't work. <laughs> people ended up wearing whatever they wanted. Absolutely. They could even wear pyjamas to pick their children up from the school gate. <laughs> I don't think that's one of <laughs> Edward III's sumptuary laws, but I'm sure if he thought about it. <laughs> Funny enough, they do st last. They, they, they are, they're still being used in the 16th century for very similar reasons, to try and control the populace from uh, opulent uh, uh, exhibitionism. I mean, it's interesting you talk about wealth there, because uh, the other chapter I found really interesting was about what people actually owned. Yeah. And even very wealthy people would would not own much stuff. No. We're so used no. to it in this modern world and, and living in a society which is driven by you got yeah. to buy more stuff. There was a, a fantastic moment in um, the Dracula series that Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss did where Dracula has been sort of under the sea for several hundred years and he comes out and he goes into this kind of fairly crappy bungalow where a couple of ne'er-do-wells are living and he says my god you must be so wealthy you have so much stuff so many belongings <laughs> they don't, what, yeah. what, what are you talking about uh, yeah. and yeah and you and you know you see in your book where you're itemizing you know they've got like one cup one book a shelf yeah. a table and a chair yeah yeah there are very, very few things i mean the the vast majority of people's wealth prior to the 18th century went on food and, in, and for the poor in the 18th century still it was uh, the majority of their spending went on food if you think about it it's just simply logical the poorer you are the more money you have to spend on sustenance but for the medieval period and the early modern period so this is true for the 16th century too if you're wealthy you have to support a very large number of people so even in uh, queen elizabeth's case i mean she's spending uh, i think some 35% of her entire income goes on sustenance to the royal household. So even at the top of society, you're looking at a third or, or more. So you can imagine how that is to being 100% at the bottom of society. But yeah, food is the big thing. So therefore, have you got money for other things? Normally, most people don't. You, they don't acquire things just for the sake of it, really, until the 16th century, mm. unless they've got huge amounts of disposable income. And our... our, our, our our consumerist society is a much later development, so where we might buy something just out of choice. So, you know, end of eighteenth, early nineteenth century thing. So these these houses and manors would be quite empty. Oh yes, um, in the early period, especially so, because if you were a lord, if we go right back, let's go back to the eleventh century. Imagine that. Well, you might be as a, a lord traveling between. You know, 10, 20 different manor houses. When you left your manor house, you took everything with you. You took your tapestries, you took your uh, your, your, your uh, hanapas, your, your drinking vessels, your, whatever it was, you carted it all with you. And the place was just basically an empty barn when you left and everything would be decorated lavishly when you returned. Now that carried on uh, for medieval lords for quite a long time. 
obviously their big their buildings became stone ones but even in the 13th century they might take the window glass with them when they moved mm. from one house to another uh they would take carpets with them and things like that if they had carpets um which were just coming in in the 13th century um by the the, the, the early 15th century you may well leave one of your homes permanently furnished but even if you were wealthy, you didn't have anything like as many uh, uh, objects as people did 200 years later. Um, you're not looking at a, a house which has got paintings hanging on the walls in the early 15th mm. century, for example, um, whereas 200 years later, you would be. Um, if you had books, you would car carry them with you. You'd take your library with you. So in, in many ways, this, this possessions thing does change in the Middle Ages, but even at the end of it, uh, not even the wealthy have huge numbers of possessions. And those people who only, have only the one house really have to prioritise food over possessions. Tools probably comes next. We, we laugh at William Shakespeare and people think, oh, what a miser that he, all he left down Hathaway was his... Was his, his best bed second or his best second bed? bed. Second, second best, best bed. bed, yeah. But that would have been an enormously expensive item, presumably. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, and there were rules governing who inherited what, which he probably just left implicit, that who got the best bed. I, I presume it went to his eldest daughter. Hmm. But um, the talking about Shakespeare's time, I mean, the, yes, he was one of the people, I think, uh, um, accused of... Uh, holding back supplies in the, the, the food shortages of the 1590s. And this was a severe problem because people started hoarding um, because they're so scared of food shortages. So the government actually had to legislate to stop hoarding. Food is everybody's priority number one, and for obvious reasons. It's only because we take it for granted that we, we forget about this high priority on, on gaining and storing food. When I was writing Time Traveller's Guide to Restoration Britain, um, I noticed, having gone through lots and lots of inventories, that if you're a yeoman of, let's say, uh, two to three hundred pounds movable chattels, which would be roughly ten times your, your annual income, virtually all of that was kept in the form of food, whether it be animals, uh, grain, uh, and frequently the chests in spare bedrooms or chambers of a house would be stocked with grain. Their idea of wealth wasn't necessarily the money it was security, the mm. idea that you actually would never have to suffer the, the hardships of famine. Um, and partly that's one of the reasons why we managed to make the old poor law work, because there was so much food hoarded by people who were trying to advance agrarian systems and agriculture in general, that when there was a food shortage, you could simply pay people to unleash some of this hoarded food wealth, uh, and therefore people did not starve. So the 1690s to 1710s period, which saw 10% of the whole population of Europe starve to death, 2 million people in France, 10% of uh, Scandinavia, 10% of Ireland, 10% of Scotland. In England, it had very little effect because we had the old system working, whereby the old poor law paid for people to buy at market, and that made prices go up so that uh, the people could release their hoarded food wealth. So... It's it's a very interesting story, uh, how food relates to our other priorities throughout history. Yeah, I mean, they, these are all the things that you don't think about and they don't really come into, you know, you're watching an old film with Hollywood film with knights and armies, you know, the idea no. that everything has to be paid for, that the bigger concern of people is is whether there's another famine around the corner. Yeah. 
Um, uh, it's a major one, which leads to so much trade. I mean, we're importing uh, grain from Europe by the mid-13th century. The idea that you can actually alleviate famine by long-distance trade is, is there by the mid-13th century. So it's, it's, it's a powerful incentive to, to get up off your ass and do something about all these uh, problems you face in the world. That's why I think the Middle Ages really do matter, because they solved most of the problems that allow us to be the relatively stable characters that we are today, rather than people <laughs> who do anything for a loaf of bread. And, and the, I mean, the other thing we don't think about with all these knights riding around on their horses is the um, spending that amount of time in the saddle. Uh, is not good for your ass. No. <laughs> uh, which leads me on to this chapter on doctors and, and medicine and, and surgeons. Is it the rectal fistula or the anal fistula? Yes, yes, it is. It's good. I, I have to squirm a little bit at that point. John of Ardern's great treatise <laughs> on the fistula. Yeah, basically a, a hole in your, um, beyond your hole. <laughs> yes, from being too long in the saddle. Yeah, for, from a number of, but that's one of the reasons I yeah. understand, yes. I don't ride myself, but uh, apparently if you, you, especially in wet weather, if you um, mm. uh, ride long distances, you can get fistula in ano is the polite but way of putting it in Latin. But there were surgeons who knew how to deal with this and could uh, yeah, as he fix demonstrates. it. Yeah, I mean, surgery in the Middle Ages is actually really interesting because they had so many opportunities to practice on people mm. uh, until they got it right. Obviously, you have the big problem of uh, infection, and they did not understand uh, and yeah. people wouldn't understand until the 19th century how infection passed uh, and how you could have you know, perfectly good procedures, which would still kill the patient because in, in infecting the blood. But the number of opportunities for surgeons to work their, their magic in the Hundred Years' War, for example, um, mm. or because of uh, ailments, occupational diseases, uh, like riding long distances, meant that surgeons knew a lot. They were knowledgeable people. We shouldn't look back at late medieval surgery and early modern surgery thinking, oh, we're so much more superior, because although we are much more capable of operating people and uh, making sure they survive, they had very high levels of knowledge, much higher than we imagine. But the doctors, on the other hand, seem to have been pretty rubbish. The idea that you would spend your life studying it in medical school and, yeah. and you say, well, to fix this disease, you need to boil up some puppies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, it's, it's always amazed me how people sort of get into that position where everyone trusts them and goes along with what they say, but it's not based on any actual scientific knowledge at all. Mostly. No, there's a lot of old uh, medicine from the ancient world that's recycled, half-remembered, repeated, not very good. There's also the element of folklore, which we obviously laugh at because it just sounds like mumbo-jumbo and like sort of pseudo-witchcraft. But if you think about it, folklore is free, whereas doctors cost a lot of money. Mm. And so therefore, folklore remedies have a lot of currency and they pass easily around and it's worth trying if you've got a problem. So therefore, folklore affects quite a lot of medical thinking. And of course, there is, to add to this, genuine medical solutions in the herbs of the countryside, yeah. which people did sort of understand and grew increasingly to understand. So there is a degree of truth in the, the, the medical recipes out there, though whether you're boiling up puppies or crushing swallows, etc., uh, <laughs> it, it, it's doubtful that any of those animal-based remedies would have done you any anything but harm, actually. Likewise, letting blood frequently would weaken the body at a time mm. just when you needed strength. But they did have a, a strong understanding of the benefits of nutrition in cases of illness. And often people who are nursing the sick would be 
prescribing lamb broth, chicken broth, which actually is exactly the right thing to do, uh, to give a better nutritional basis from which the body can then recover. The doctors themselves, their medical thinking was around the humors of the body, which are Galenic ideas that come from the the, the ancient Rome and actually predate Galen. They, they, They go back before Christ. Uh, and lasted until the 17th century. So the, the, the theory of the humours uh, being out of balance, which basically doesn't do any good at all. So letting blood doesn't do any good at all. Taking astronomical readings for the onset of your illness doesn't do any good at all. I'm not sure that investigating people's feces and um, smelling their urine does much good either. You could be subjected to all sorts of uh, humiliations, is a good word to use, if you're a victim or a patient in the, the late Middle Ages. But I would have far more regard for the surgeons than I would for the physicians. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I suppose there is, there can be a placebo effect in that. Oh, this doctor has given me this. Therefore, well, it's quite. Be I mean, and and clearly, I mean, Henry the Fourth we were talking about earlier. Henry the Fourth paid lots of money for his physicians and even allowed Jews to come here and be his physicians because they had so much knowledge mm. at a time when Jews were forbidden from living in England. And likewise, Queen Elizabeth, she paid for for Jewish physicians because they were so much more knowledgeable. So there is that sense that um, in past societies that they might have limited knowledge, but they're the best you're going to get. And how did God fit into all of this? How central was religion to people's lives? Ultimately, everybody saw Christ as the great physician. So it's your faith that is going to get you through. And a lot of people, when faced with a, a, a what would turn out, turn out to be a fatal disease, would actually not take any medicine because it was deemed more spiritually pure just to let God do what he wanted with you. And so, that still persists in some It does. Today, yeah, but it? These days, the majority of people would go to a doctor, whereas going back to Bernard of Clairvaux's time, so in the early 12th century, he declared that going to physicians was against God's will. So we actually see the Middle Ages, or another one of my horizons, a complete change from going to the doctor being against God's will. They are the means by which God operates, if you know what I mean. The the healing power goes to the doctor from God. People's religion, well, the way I put it in Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England, is that not believing in God is like not believing in trees. You know, (laughs) get over it. They're they're there. I mean, there is no such thing as an atheist until Elizabeth's reign. No one voices these ideas. And if they do, and the early examples of people like uh, Marlowe, uh, they're just shunned. They're, they're not, not taken seriously at all. They're just seen as being agents of the devil. So religion is not only powerful, but it's universal. And that universality gives it added power. The absolute height of the religious control probably is the pontificate of Pope Innocent III. So right at the start of the, the, the 13th century. And that's really when the Pope had the greatest authority and was able to launch crusades against the Cathars, for example, but also able to sort of lay down what Christian people should do throughout the whole of Christendom and use that power for an awful lot of good, I have to add. I mean, our our educational system, which eventually ended up challenging the church's authority, is a product of papal reform and ordering that cathedrals should have schools and then major towns should have schools. So there's there's a lot of papal control, but the church is really overseeing change in every aspect of people's lives. So religion is influencing every moral decision, not just whether you get a church, but also whether you fight, whether you take a medicine, whether you educate your sons. It's it, it's a very religious world. So would it be fair to say that the biggest changes 
in religious belief are not actually to do with whether or not you believe in God. He's just there. He's a given. But it's how you approach God, how you worship him. With people like the Lollards questioning whether we needed a big, expensive, worldly and overpaid clergy at all. Definitely. That's the major one here uh, in England uh, at the end of the 14th century, the beginning of the 15th. And obviously Lollardy persists despite uh, kings stamping down on it. I mean, burning people alive at the stake comes in in the 15th century or heresy. So that is something that really carries on in Europe in a much bigger way because you have people like Jan Hus at uh, the Council of Constance who is burnt alive for his um, heretical beliefs. And it is a feeling that grows. But as education increases, and most importantly, the Bible gets printed Mm. in the vernacular, that means people can actually have the word of God for themselves and can actually interpret the word of God for themselves. They no longer need the authority of the Pope or even the authority of their local priest to explain it to them. It's like a sort of early postmodernist questioning of authority in that they throw off their, their allegiance in Northern Europe, certainly, to, to the local priest and to the idea that they have to give money to the Pope to, to, to build a new chapel somewhere. You know, So there is the, a questioning of religious authority, a questioning of religious wealth. And that culminates, obviously, with the 95 Theses in 1517, which Martin Luther promulgates. And um, yeah, the rest is definitely history. Thank you so much, Ian Mortimer, for being my time-travelling guide to the Middle Ages. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. Do look out for further sidebar episodes of this series and look out for Ian, who I'm sure will return as a guest. If you have any ideas for other supplementary episodes, areas you'd like to find out more about, please do get in touch with me on Twitter. I am at Monstroso, M-O-N-S-T-R-O-S-O. There will be another regular episode of Willy Willy Harry Stee coming out this week on Friday. It is Edward III, one of our most successful monarchs, and my guest on that episode will be Helen Carr. So do join me then. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.